Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That with episode 312 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again. It is Thursday and you know exactly what that means. We are here to talk all things AEW and NXT and what was a pretty damn good midweek of professional wrestling sports and entertainment. That's right, we're going to break down everything that happened on AEW and NXT this week. NXT, of course, coming out of In Your House. AEW still building on its way to its very special Forbidden Door pay-per-view alongside New Japan Pro Wrestling. I am certainly excited about that show. I'm excited about some of the matches that seem to be in progress of happening for that show, but a couple weeks out and we still don't know that much. We're going to break down as much of that as we can on today's show, but I got to start this episode of Getting Over like I would any episode of Getting Over by reminding you that this podcast is So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify, leave a five-star rating on Apple, also leave a review, let everyone know how much you love the show, why you listen, why you subscribe, and why they should as well. Also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at GettingOverCast. Luckily, we're able to take a little bit of a break from our instant analysis and instant reaction episodes, at least we think a break. We'll see what the hell happens in the world of professional wrestling uh, over the next couple of weeks. Uh, but we will be back with those special shows around Forbidden Door and Money in the Bank in consecutive weeks, uh, coming up about three weeks from now or so. And that uh, Twitter handle, Getting Overcast, is a great place for you to participate in the conversation with us. Listen to free live audio pre-shows ahead of special events, pay-per-views, and premium live events, and send us DMs, thoughts, uh, questions, comments, etc. for the show. And normally we read those on air. It has been an exceptionally busy week. It was early in the week for both uh, Vintage Chris Vanini and yours truly. And it is today as the Silver King is going on a little bit of a short weekend vacation. But before I leave the friendly confines of South Florida, I did decide to go see Top Gun Maverick in the theaters. Uh, you know, listen, I've seen the reviews. I've seen all the people uh, praising it up and down. Straight up, I'm not going to talk about it for five minutes here, but it completely lived up to the billing. I was shocked that a movie praised as widely as this one, all the different uh, ways it's been praised, lived up to every single one of them. It is fantastic. I highly recommend seeing it in theaters. But if you were waiting for this episode on Thursday, and if you're listening to it early Friday and kind of saying, why the hell was this out so late? Well, that's the reason. I wanted to make sure I saw the movie before I went away. So thank you for indulging me and being patient as this episode got produced. I did also want to read a DM I got from Matt Van Warmer at Matt underscore Van Warmer. He said, I just spit out my yellow, I'm sorry, chartreuse Gatorade. When Chris said he's done talking about New Day and the Brutes, you guys are killing it lately. I've been quarantining since Thursday with COVID and the great pods are getting me through it. Getting over is the only podcast I never miss. And we get a lot of really kind comments from you guys. I appreciate all of them. But obviously Matt's suffering with COVID right now. I hope you feel better uh, and get better soon. And of course, hope we're there to uh, entertain you along the way. So, you know, thanks for that. And as I said, feel better. Wishes from me, Chris, and I'm sure everyone else listening right now. So a quick preview before we get all the way deep into AEW and NXT 
uh, individually. I enjoyed both shows this week. I thought NXT is was probably top to bottom one of the best shows they've put on uh, since 2.0. This version of it has begun. For AEW, it was a very solid show top to bottom. Um, you know, they did a lot in a very short period of time on that show to kind of like reset the deck and get things ready for next week and going forward. But it was far from a perfect show. A lot of really confusing decisions from a creative standpoint, from a booking standpoint, we're going to get into every single one of them. And then there was also some big news, you know, whether it's to be believed or not, TBD, but some big news coming out about WWE and the heavyweight championship picture uh, that I in some ways can't wait to talk about on this upcoming Tuesday WWE show and in other ways dread talking about because I feel like it's a topic we've already covered um, ad nauseum at this point. But nevertheless, uh, lots of big, huge news to talk about in the world of professional wrestling. So for this week, we are going to begin with AEW. For any first-time listeners, we have timestamps in our episode descriptions. So if you want to skip ahead to what's going on with NXT or you know, you're someone who's coming in and just wants to listen to AEW, hit the episode description, find the timestamps, and you can skip around. But as I always say, I hope that if you are listening to the show, you're listening the whole way through because it's really important to know what is happening uh, across brand lines. But as I said, we are going to start with AEW. And this week, in a rarity, there's actually a main event topic for All Elite Wrestling. And that is AEW beginning it's long, very long journey, maybe longer than it should be, uh, to crown an interim world champion as CM Punk continues to recover now. Uh, he just recently underwent surgery for broken bones that are very nonspecific, I believe, in his foot, perhaps other places as well. So there was a two-pronged approach to this Wednesday on Dynamite, and then there's another prong that's happening at New Japan Pro Wrestling Dominion, its special show. I believe it's next week. Um, and I'm going to break down right now what those prongs are before we get into it. So this is how it's basically going. There was a battle royal to open Dynamite. The winner of that battle royal would face John Moxley, who was determined to be the number one contender for the AEW World Championship in the main event of Dynamite. And the winner of that is the first person in the interim world championship match at Forbidden Door. The other side has Hiroshi Tanahashi and Hiroki Goto from NJPW fighting at Dominion. The winner of that will go on to face John Moxley or the person that wins the battle royal at Forbidden Door for the AEW Interim World Championship. If that sounded convoluted, number one, that's because it is. Uh, in terms of why they made those decisions, what they mean, we'll talk about that right now. We're going to get through it. Uh, let's start with the way AEW Dynamite started, the way this Invitational, whatever you want to call it, started. And that was the battle royal for the opportunity to face John Moxley in the main event of Dynamite. This was announced as a casino battle royal on Wednesday. I suppose the idea was to suggest the Joker would be a surprise participant. And I suppose it was to a small degree, not enough where I think they needed to do the casino gimmick. And by doing the gimmick, it really kind of prevented the match from starting as hot as it could. Here is who participated in the casino battle royal. Daniel Garcia, Tony Nese, Lance Archer, Darby Allen, Eddie Kingston, Ricky Starks, Jake Hager, Ray Phoenix, Swerve Strickland, Keith Lee, John Silver, Konosuke Takeshka, Max Caster, uh, Powerhouse Hobbs, Kyle O'Reilly, Bobby Fish, Dante Martin, Wheeler Yuta, Austin Gunn, Colton Gunn, and Andrade El Idolo. And I think by me reading that list of names, you can easily kind of pop your head in there and say the Gunn Brothers, the Ass Boys, whatever you want to call them, Fish. 
Caster. I mean, you can make a case for Hager, I guess. Nice. Like there's at least a half dozen, if not more, people who are in this match. And yeah, you need people who can just get eliminated when it comes to battle royals. But there were people who really should not be in a world championship eliminator battle royal. It just didn't really make sense. Now, here's the names who did not participate. Frickin' Wardlow, uh, the previous number one contender, now the number two contender, Chris Jericho, Samoa Joe, Hangman Adam Page, Pac, Penta Oscuro, Malachi Black, Scorpio Sky, either of the Hardy Boys, Jungle Boy, Miro, and obviously Brian Danielson and Adam Cole, both of whom are injured, and obviously John Moxley, who was waiting for the winner of the Battle Royal in the main event. Now, six of the names I just mentioned in that short list of those who did not participate are in another tournament for a new AEW championship that we will get to in a bit. That's a whole nother conversation. But it sure felt like this tournament could have started next week for the new AEW championship. That tournament could have started next week. That way, all of those names I just mentioned were in this battle royal. It did not make sense they shoved both of these onto one show. In terms of highlights from the match, uh, Starks entered and immediately ate a code red from Darby. Lee eliminated Archer early because of course Archer uh, was eliminated early. He's not allowed to have any form of success in AEW. Uh, That's just how he's booked. Silver got a hot tag equivalent when he entered. Caster and his crew did their whole intro mid-match with the cameras completely focusing on them and missing the action in the ring. Darby immediately did a coffin drop outside to Red Dragon when they arrived. It was strange. Some teams like Red Dragon, uh, Keith Lee and Swerve Strickland, they entered together and other teams did not enter together. Just very random and they didn't really explain why. Lee and Swerve eliminated the Ass Boys before uh, Swerve turned and eliminated Lee. That really pissed Keith off. Andrade ended up being the Joker and his music just kept playing once he got into the ring. I thought that was kind of strange. Commentary said they would explain later in the show why Wardlow wasn't in the match. That's a whole thing I'm going to get into. Uh, Team Taz eliminated Takeshka and Martin. Action at this at this point finally picked up massively when we got to the final seven. Um, Darby and Swerve teamed up until Swerve turned on Darby. Andrade then booted Swerve, leaving him with Phoenix, O'Reilly, Starks, and Hobbs. Yuta leveraged Hobbs over. Uh, Phoenix and Andrade had a great sequence with Andrade hitting a midair low blow before eliminating Phoenix. Andrade got flipped outside. O'Reilly hit Yuta with a dragon screw on the ropes, then booted him off the apron for the win. I went, you know, 3.5 stars in B for this. It started awfully, but we got some really fun wrestling down the stretch. This is 100% a spot that I believe would have gone to Adam Cole if he was healthy. Nothing against KOR necessarily. He's an extremely talented wrestler who I knew was going to put on a great match with Mox in the main event, but it was a huge letdown that even worse, made everything that succeeded it irrelevant. Mox isn't going to lose to Kyle O'Reilly. And Mox isn't going to lose to either of the New Japan guys who, as I mentioned, are fighting for a spot at Forbidden Door at Dominion in a week or so. So after the first match in this entire series, we already know who the interim AEW world champion is going to be. It's just blatantly obvious at this point. Now they could swerve us in theory, it would be a shocker and probably a really bad decision if they tried. John Moxley is your next AEW world champion because it sure as shit is not going to be Kyle O'Reilly. And I highly doubt it's Tanahashi or Goto. It just, you know, you go into it looking at like what's obvious in front of you. So we got Mox against KOR in the main event. 
After the Battle Royal, Mox cut a great promo with really awful audio saying O'Reilly would be in the ring with the wrong guy at the wrong place in the wrong time. Mox said the Forbidden Door belongs to him as he dominates both AEW and New Japan. William Regal was backstage with Undisputed Era, suggesting KOR be careful with Mox before shaking his hand. KOR cut a really passionate promo after that, and Cole said he believed in him. The Regal part was completely unnecessary, but you see, it's funny because they were all in NXT together, so haha, <laughs> tongue in cheek. Uh, O'Reilly hit a flying knee on Mox while he was hanging on the second rope by his knee. After a superplex, Mox kicked the rope with O'Reilly's mouth on it and did a King Kong lariat for a near fall. Mox cut KOR with a cutter, but he countered a gotch pile driver into a triangle choke and a heel hook. Mox came back with a pile driver for a 2.8. They traded strikes and slaps. They both no-sold Saito suplexes and collapsed into each other's arms. Mox caught O'Reilly in the bulldog choke and then let go, hit a regal knee plus the paradigm shift for the win. Brilliant wrestling match. Hard-hitting, technical, everything you could possibly want between these two. Probably could have used a little bit more story. Also would have been great if it got more than 13 minutes with a long commercial break, but this was good enough given Mox was a no-brainer to beat KOR. He was fresh. He just was not going to lose this match. So maybe you don't really need to drag it out. I went 4.25 stars in an A. Top tier stuff from both of them. Very, very entertaining. So as I said, Mox has now come out of Dynamite as the winner of the AEW portion, I guess, of the bracket for the interim AEW World Championship. He's going to face Tanahashi or Goto. As I said, that's going to be decided at Dominion. And I do have to believe that Tanahashi is going to win that match, given the fact that they had previously announced CM Punk against Tanahashi. That was what they were doing. So it would make sense to have Tanahashi in the same spot. Now, I love both Tanahashi and Goto, uh, but it's unfathomable to me that these two guys would each get a 25% chance at winning the AEW title when neither of them has wrestled a single match in AEW. Like, I get that it's a brand versus brand pay-per-view, but sometimes exceptions have to be made. And when you need to crown an interim AEW world champion, you make that exception. Or you do it on your go-home show to Dynamite. That way you have a new champion and Tanahashi is there waiting for that person as the challenger. Given all of the talent on AEW's roster, it does not make a shred of sense that another tournament they're doing is basically better equipped at deciding a champion, an interim champion or a new champion, than the one they actually did for their interim world championship. Uh, It it should have only been AEW wrestlers contending. I just don't understand why two guys from New Japan are even in the realm of getting an opportunity when Chris Jericho and Hangman Page and all these other people are not. Speaking of Hangman Page, let's get to him. So we had Page against David Finlay. Uh, Page hit a tope suicida and drank a fan's beer. Then he hit a flinging crossbody outside and a pop-up sit-down powerbomb for a near fall. Finlay got a 2.9 on an inside cradle. Hangman sold a knee, but hit a lariat and a buckshot lariat for the win. After the bell, Page said he had a lot to say about the AEW World Championship, but he wasn't going to say it tonight because he's not going to get a title shot anytime soon. Why is he not getting a title shot anytime soon? Why wasn't he involved in this stuff on Wednesday? He is number three in the rankings. So yeah, he should probably get a title shot sometime soon. And he probably should have been in the festivities on Wednesday. This was the perfect time to explain. And they just chose not to. Um, Let's not forget that when he was doing the promo with CM Punk, 
he basically said the same thing. He's like, there's a lot I could say right now, but I'm not going to say it. So that's two major promos from this guy in a row where he's got a lot to say, but he's not saying it at that time. When's he actually going to say it? What does he have to say? Why am I waiting for it? doesn't make any sense. Um, anyway, Paige said there's more than one world title in professional wrestling, and he wants to challenge for the IWGP World Heavyweight Championship against Kazuchika Okada. That got a big pop. Cole, who was on commentary for the match for basically no reason whatsoever, called him stupid and said that Cole, he deserved the shot given his winning streak, winning the Owen, all that type of stuff. So I suppose they're either going to have a play-in match for the spot next week, or they're going to do a triple threat. I'm not exactly sure what they're doing. Uh, Paige and Finlay was a perfectly good match. Like I said, it did not make sense for Paige not to be involved in all the festivities on Wednesday. He could have been in the Battle Royal and lost, got eliminated, and made the challenge after. Now, if we get Okada against either of these guys, it's going to be a high-level banger. I'd prefer Hangman to Cole, uh, but I'd take either of them. And if we end up doing both, that's interesting as well. So I do like the back-end booking here. Like I, I do appreciate Page against Okada, Cole may be involved, whatever the case might be. But again, as I'm going to mention a second time coming up in a moment, it does not make any sense why the number three contender for the championship, I don't care that he just lost the title. That was his first loss in a very long time. Uh, it doesn't make sense that he wasn't involved somehow. And it doesn't make sense that he said he wanted to talk about it, but then chose not to. Speaking of things that did not make sense, Wardlow was interviewed by Tony Schiavone. The gimmick being that he chose not to be in the battle royal because CM Punk is the AEW world champion and he's the one that Wardlow wants to beat and Wardlow is going to wait for him to come back to do so. Wardlow said instead that his focus is on the TNT title because it's been diminished. Scorpio Sky came out angry and he was held back because he has an injured knee. Wardlow says, don't worry, I'll wait for you to be 110% healthy. So Wardlow is not only waiting for Punk to get back, he's happy to wait for Sky. If he cares so much about fighting Punk, Wardlow could have won the interim world championship and been given, wait for it, a guaranteed match against Punk to merge the titles. By choosing not to compete for it, in kayfabe, he's basically saying the interim championship is worthless, which is absolutely not true, and it absolutely should not be true. The lack of logic here for me was absolutely stunning. I don't understand the point of the promo if all he's going to say is, well, I'm not going to get a title shot anytime soon, so just keep waiting. He's not going to fight Punk because Punk's not healthy. He's not going to go after the interim world championship for really no good reason. And he's perfectly content to wait for Scorpio Sky to challenge for the TNT championship. So really, what was the point of this guy talking? I'm not necessarily going to give it a 0.0, but I'm telling you, it was not good. And then we had Mark Sterling, who basically kind of cut him off. He cut a taped promo saying, Wardlow can either meet him in court for tearing up his lawsuit last week or fight 20 security guards or wrestlers or whoever in an elimination match. Hmm, I wonder which one Wardlow is going to choose. I wonder if he'll just kick the shit out of 20 guys like he's been doing for the last three months. I mean, it's going to be a spectacle, but we've seen him do this 
every single week in AEW at this point. And straight up, man, it's just boring. Now, I tweeted some of this during Dynamite, and many of you argued with me that I was being too harsh on AEW for this whole booking. Here's what I'll say. Wardlow had a crowning moment at Double or Nothing, and he was among the most over things on that show and has been among the most over wrestlers in AEW. He squashed arguably the top heel in the company. What he has done since is fight J.D. Drake, decline going after an interim title, choose to wait for a TNT title shot, and then next week he gets to beat up 20 security guards. That's malpractice booking when it comes to taking advantage of someone's red-hot momentum, period. What they should have done is put him in the battle royal, allow him to get eliminated by someone like Keith Lee, then when he wins the TNT championship, Lee is set up as his first challenger, Wardlow beats Keith Lee, and now he looks like an absolute monster. I have no problem with Wardlow being the next TNT champion and going after that title instead of the world title. It's actually a great idea. He does not necessarily need to be pushed to the world title picture right away, but there's no scenario in which he should not have been actively going after it. And there's no harm in someone being eliminated from a battle royal. It's not a loss on your record. It's not a pin or submission. It doesn't make you look bad. You just happen to fall over the ropes. The truth is, Wardlow just should never have mentioned the world championship in his promo. He could have just said, my focus is on the TNT championship, blah, blah, blah. But if I was booking the damn territory, I absolutely would have put him in that battle royal. The fact that he wasn't in that, the fact that he doesn't care about the interim world championship, it diminishes the world championship and it diminishes Wardlow and straight up, it just doesn't really make a lot of sense. It doesn't make sense to anybody because nobody says that. No, I don't understand because nobody understands. By the way, since we did mention Sky on Rampage, there was a TNT Championship match, Sky against Dante Martin. Martin hit a springboard splash outside. After a good battle back in the ring, Sky won with the TKO in about seven minutes. And I believe this is the match where Scorpio hurt his knee. So that is the interim world championship picture. Let's move to AEW's announcement of its newest title, the All-Atlantic Championship, which to me at first sounded like a takeoff of the Intercontinental Championship, but now I'm kind of thinking it's more of a European championship with a gimmick of basically featuring non-American wrestlers competing at least in the inaugural eight-man tournament with a fatal four-way determining the winner at Forbidden Door. It's another men's singles title, which is probably needed to some degree, except they have all the Ring of Honor titles that have been on TV recently. The bracket is very strong. Buddy Matthews from Australia, Pac from Great Britain, Ethan Page from Canada, Miro from Bulgaria, Penta Oscuro from Mexico, Malachi Black from the Netherlands, and then two New Japan wrestlers yet to be announced. I presume both of them will be from Japan. In terms of thoughts on this, uh, hate the name, truly hate the name, love, love the look of the championship belt. I have a feeling the idea behind this is for it to be defended worldwide outside of AEW, basically in different companies as a means of like promoting AEW. And you know what? That's not really a bad idea at all. It's kind of like the New Japan United States Championship is kind of the way I could look look at it in that way. The hope though, is that it does not become irrelevant day to day or week to week 
like the European title eventually did for WWE. Now, given the wrestlers in this tournament, they're almost all pretty huge names. Maybe it does get treated more like an intercontinental title, but we're going to have to see, looking at the bracket, who would best fit it as a winner. Right now, Pac is the one I'm looking at. Um, You know, I think Miro would probably have to be in that fatal four-way match, but you can put whoever you want in that match because only one person ultimately gets pinned. Now, it could be Pac. I would really be interested in finding out who the two new Japan wrestlers are because given it will be at Forbidden Door, the idea of putting an AEW title on a new Japan wrestler is probably a great one uh, for relations between the companies, for getting that person into the United States more frequently, um, getting the AEW name uh, mentioned more consistently on New Japan television and other events in the area. So I don't you know, know necessarily who's, who those two uh, NJPW wrestlers are going to be. But if either of them is a very significant name, if we get like a Tomohiro Ishii or something like that, uh, then there you go. I mean, I could totally see him winning this and being the first champion. I also think that would be pretty cool. But in terms of the championship, you know, it just kind of feels unnecessary. If Ring of Honor does get a television deal soon, if the Ring of Honor storylines do get divorced from AEW television, then it's less of a big deal because that's, I think there's six Ring of Honor titles. Those go away. I believe this would be like the seventh uh, AEW championship. If we go through it, uh, we're going to have the world title, TNT, women's, TBS, tag team, that's six. The All-Atlantic Championship would then be seven. Obviously, we're not counting the interim title, and we're not counting these Owen uh, title belts that Adam Cole and Britt Baker are carrying around because I don't think those are going to be defended. If you do include the FTW title, then it would be going from seven to eight instead of six to seven. So, you know, I don't think that's necessarily too many titles. It's not the number that I'm concerned with, but it's the fact that it's a third men's singles championship, fourth, if you include the FTW title, whereas this is the wrestling company that has so many teams, trios, groups, and factions that they could have easily added a trios title. And that would have made all the sense in the world. This was not necessary for them to add. And candidly, you know, the name is just horrendous. It also is not appropriate. If you look at the flags on the championship belt, I believe two of them are from countries that don't even touch the Atlantic, Japan and China. Uh, One version of the title had the Mexican flag backwards. Um, And I don't mean backwards like it's inverted, which it is in the title, but literally it was backwards. The wrong color uh, was against the post, you know, versus what it should be. So it just, I don't know if it was rushed. I don't know if, um, I don't know where this came from. I'm not sure why they announced it on the show. It completely felt like something that could have definitely waited one more week, especially given the fact that you're basically having four qualifying matches, one for New Japan, three on AEW, and you can easily do three qualifying matches next week and the week after leading into Forbidden Door. You did not need to shove it on the same show as you were trying to figure out the interim world championship picture, especially when you basically took six of your top names out of that picture and saved them for this tournament. And I can't necessarily believe that anyone would have gone up to like Malachi Black or Penta Oscuro or Miro and say, hey guys, would you rather compete for the interim AEW world championship or this brand new all Atlantic championship that doesn't even exist and doesn't have any prestige yet. 
you would think in you know reality, they'd say, oh no, I want to compete for the world title. So again, just, it was messy. Um, I'm not going to give it like, a, I'm not going to do a sound drop or anything like that because it wasn't actually that bad, but the name is horrible. <laughs> the name of it is just awful. And I don't think I'm going to get over that, but I am kind of curious to see what happens. And I am curious to see where it's defended, how it's defended, who becomes the first champion and kind of where it stands in relevance compared to the TNT title. We did get our first qualifying match on Dynamite. It was Pack against Buddy Matthews. As you would expect, this was a thrill ride. Matthews hit a great Liger Bomb for a near fall. Pack then caught him with an awesome Poison Rana and hit the Black Arrow for the win. Very good match. Didn't exactly live up to my expectations. I would say that this was nothing they had not already done in WWE on 205 Live. I had seen them do this match before. It would have been nice to see like the AEW version of this match, which is really what everyone wants to say, uh, that you know the handcuffs are off. They can do whatever they want. I didn't really see anything that was that uh, overly spectacular, but I mean, I enjoyed the shit out of it. It was awesome. It was a great wrestling match. Uh, so with that, those were the two really big storylines from AEW. Let's go to everything else that happened across Rampage and Dynamite. On Rampage, we had the Young Bucks against the Lucha Bros. Adam Cole was on commentary. The crowd loved the over-choreographed start. They did like six straight topes with the Tornillo from Ray Phoenix ending it. Phoenix then hit a rolling cutter on Matt Jackson outside. Nick hit a draping senton bomb on Phoenix a bit later. The Lucha Bros then did draping double stomp DDT combos, both inside and outside. I legitimately had no idea who was legal at this point. Phoenix did the Eddie Guerrero shake with a huge frog splash on Matt for a near fall. Phoenix jumped on Penta's shoulders and ended up hitting his own brother with a poison Rana when Nick hit him with a springboard dropkick. Phoenix then did a splash off Penta's shoulders onto Nick before Penta jumped off his brother's back for a Canadian destroyer. On Matt, by the way, uh, for a near fall on Nick, that really should have ended the match. It was just a spectacular move. Nick hit Phoenix with a poison Rana. They caught him with a Meltzer driver for a false finish. Matt then ripped off Penta's mask and the Bucks at the BTE trigger on Phoenix to win in 15 minutes. This was an outstanding match in every conceivable way. The finish felt cheap for the high level of wrestling, um, and it also felt repetitive because I believe we've seen the mask tear off leading to a finish finish for Lucha Bros matches like half a dozen times in AEW so far. Plus, the Bucks winning made the Hardys win at double or nothing even more nonsensical. Now, that's how I felt in the moment. We'll get back to that in a couple minutes. Um, this was a top tier match, though. One of the best show openers in AEW history. Uh, the shoulder splash Canadian Destroyer sequence, it was one of the best sequences in any wrestling match I've seen this year. As I've said many times before, Ray Phoenix is not human. I basically, you know, you know the way a certain person has a bias for the Young Bucks. I have a little bit of a bias for Ray Phoenix in that way. You put him in a ring, he does crazy shit. I give you an extra, you know, quarter to a half star. I ultimately went 4.5 stars and an A for this match. It was fantastic. The two reasons I didn't go into the A-plus range were the finish was very disappointing, and it was just a sprint the entire way through. There was basically no storytelling in the match whatsoever, and I'm not going to give a match five stars if it doesn't have a good finish and those elements that I was talking about. So I did a quarter point downgrade for each, 4.5 stars in an A, still a crazy good grade. I liked this better than many of the other Young Bucks Lucha Bros matches that I've seen previously because many of those felt overindulgent. This was just like the right amount of craziness, but I just wish they had the storytelling aspect of it 
that really would have added to it for me. Now, I did have a thought after the match that AEW could put together a massive hair versus mask match between these teams, like blow off the feud. I don't know if the Jacksons would go for it, but it would be absolutely epic to have the Lucha Bros putting their masks on the line, both Young Bucks putting their hair on the line, and have it say, like, this will be the final time these two teams fate, uh, face each other for at least two years. Or like you put you put some crazy stipulation on it and you give that as the, uh, the, the gamble, right? And I think it would be a load of fun, something that you could main event to pay-per-view with. I'd love to see it. Uh, now on Dynamite, the Bucks bragged about their successful week in the dressing room. They said they wanted the titles back. The Hardys interrupted saying they beat the Bucks, so they should get the title shot. Well, no shit. Uh, Christian Cage and Jurassic Express entered saying they wanted to get their wins back. So they challenged them. I should say Christian really challenged them to a triple threat ladder match. Everyone was happy with the challenge, except for obviously Jurassic Express. And what I appreciated about this segment so much, and it's something that AEW does not really do that frequently, is this one segment tied a lot of loose ends together that I had been criticizing for the last couple of weeks. So I definitely retract some of those criticisms or those stand as criticisms. But when you note that they actually wrapped it all up, that's obviously a massive positive. I do question in some degree, Jeff Hardy going right back into a match like this coming off of what happened to Double or Nothing. But other than that concern, this is gonna be an absolute banger. It should not only result in a title change, it should also further the Jungle Boy Christian storyline that we have kind of them two butting heads. So I loved everything about this booking. It makes a ton of sense. Uh, I loved the way that they explained why the Young Bucks had been on such a hot streak after losing to the Hardys, whereas the Hardys haven't been able to compete. And it almost seemed like they were gonna throw the Young Bucks into a title match and forget about the fact that the Hardys beat them. But no, they didn't. The Hardys were basically sidelined mostly with Jeff and the Young Bucks won a couple matches and now they throw it all together. It makes a ton of sense. So it's a big match. It's gonna be a big TV match next week. I just love that they really thought this through and put together a really cohesive storyline that kind of explained again a lot of the problems I had with the booking to this point. On Dynamite, Trent Beretta said he was bummed out that his best friends weren't there on National Best Friends Day. He said Rapongi Vice deserves another shot at FTR for the ROH tag team titles. FTR said Trent should actually be mad at Jeff Cobb and Great O'Conn, not them. All of a sudden, the uh, United Empire music hit, and I expected to see Cobb and O'Conn, but instead we actually got Will Ospreay, the leader of United Empire, he came out with Mark Davis, Kyle Fletcher, and another guy who I didn't recognize attacking the baby faces before Osprey laid Trent out with a running back elbow. I think it's loaded with a, uh, a brace that probably has metal um, in the elbow pad, I guess, is the gimmick. Look, Osprey's awesome. Uh, he's great in the ring. And Osprey showing up in AEW as a surprise is a good one to build for Forbidden Door. This is a huge deal. It was a huge deal in the moment. But there should have been a massive pop for that. And maybe it was the audio of the episode playing tricks on me. It seemed to be just mediocre. Also, debuting Osprey against these guys is such a letdown compared to what he could otherwise be doing. Like, I want to see this guy in a singles match against, I don't know, Malachi Black or Miro or, you know, like, like just pick anyone. Pick any of the, uh, Ray Phoenix, pick any of the crazy ass names on this roster I want to see Osprey fight them. I don't really want him in this third tier tag team storyline right now. Uh, so I, I thought it was a little bit of a letdown. I don't know what they're going to do. Uh, uh, you know, 
title on the line, two titles on the line, uh, a 10 man. I, I don't exactly know what the booking is. I know that we're going to get a couple of those on the show, the big multi-man matches, because that is a new Japan staple. It's also a great way to get a lot of talent from both companies onto this show. But it, to me, just felt extremely strange and lackluster when it really shouldn't because Osprey, me seeing him on screen, I thought it was a big deal and I was really excited about it. Uh, on Dynamite, we had a women's championship match, Thunder Rosa against Marina Shafir. The entire angle for this was a quick backstage interaction. Shafir is not, by the way, among the top five women's contenders in the rankings. Rosa won by rolling off Shafir's shoulders into a pinning combination. Decent match, it got about seven minutes, but this poorly booked champion couldn't even beat a garbage challenger with her finisher. She just won with a, a rolling, you know, pinning combination. Uh, Shafir attacked immediately after the bell, and she did put her in a really cool armbar headlock type of move. Tony Storm then made the save. Uh, Rosa finally hit her finisher on Shafir after it was already over. Uh, then Tony Storm handed Thunder Rosa her own title, and they gave the look to each other like, oh, I'm going to probably come after this. Uh, so that was it. The, the post-match just seemed kind of meh. On Rampage, we had Athena against Kiera Hogan. Stokely Hathaway said Hogan would send Athena to the back of the line. The baddie sat at ringside. This was Athena's debut match. Red Velvet inter interfered early. The crowd was quiet for a while, but eventually gave Athena a chant. Velvet interfered again, and Athena's head went into the top turnbuckle. Hogan hit a sliding dropkick for a near fall. Athena finally hit the Eclipse for the win, and she got a huge pop. Hogan did a good job of selling in this match. I was impressed with her. And Athena looked damn good as usual. Now, I doubt they put her over Jade Cargill, but I think it would be nice if they did. And I believe we're going to get Athena against Velvet uh, this upcoming week on Rampage, I think is what the booking was. Also on Rampage, we had Ricky Starks and Powerhouse Hobbs against a couple jobbers. Stark and Hobbs attacked before the bell. AEW cut to a promo from earlier right after the bell rang. And the match literally ended before the promo concluded. I love both of these guys. I don't necessarily mind them being in the tag team division, but it just feels unnecessary for them to be in it, given the plethora of crazy good tag teams that AEW has. And this was just simply not paced well at all. It was so rushed that they didn't even get over from it. Like they had this win where they murdered these two guys and no one just thought anything of it because they expected the match to go a couple minutes and it didn't. Uh, so that's really the full breakdown of AEW. I did want to make a correction from something I said on last week's show that was just blatantly incorrect. For some reason, I thought when AEW announced it, and maybe Excalibur ran through it so quickly two weeks ago that he said it wrong or I missed it or whatever the case, but I thought for some reason the hair versus hair match was actually going to come after Blood and Guts, but in fact, it is happening before. So we are getting the hair versus hair match, Chris Jericho against Ortiz at Road Rager next week on June 15th. Again, I don't know why I got confused last week, but I did. So it is good booking. No problems with the booking. The hair versus hair match is happening before Blood and Guts, which obviously they need to build to because we got to know everyone who's going to be in that match. So we will see how that ultimately goes. So that was AEW this week. As I said, look, there were a lot of really good parts of, on that show. I, I explained them to you. I broke them down. But the booking for the interim world championship, the stuff with Hangman, but really the stuff with Wardlow, legitimately pissed me off. I thought it was a huge logic gap, did not make sense. And honestly, it was completely unnecessary for it to be as convoluted as AEW made it uh, to be. So with that, let's move to NXT. As I said earlier, I did believe it was one of the best NXT episodes top to bottom since the 2.0 transition began. Nearly every segment on the show hit. 
We had three really damn good matches, multiple intriguing storylines. It was a fresh start in many ways from In Your House. Everything you want in a show after a pay-per-view or a premium live event, we basically got from NXT on Tuesday. Braun Breaker, uh, somewhere in the middle of the show, talked about overcoming Joe Gacy and all the obstacles that he presented. He said, everyone backstage wants a shot at the NXT title and asked who is next. Suddenly out of nowhere, Apollo Crews music hits. The crowd exploded and Cruz was going crazy himself. You could tell he was juiced by it. It was, it was actually a pretty awesome and kind of a touching moment. Cruz grabbed the mic and his Nigerian accent was gone. He said he missed this kind of energy and the crowd chanted, we missed you. Cruz put over Braun for being a top athlete and said that Cruz left NXT way too soon last time. He said he's back to correct history, change history and make history. He promised they'll eventually make history together, extended his hand and Braun shook it. This was a great moment. You could tell Cruz was affected emotionally by the response he got from the crowd. I was a bit surprised to see the accent gone, but based on his promo, you could tell in that moment, he's gonna work his way up to the uh, NXT championship and he's staying in NXT for what I believe to be a very extended period of time. Now, whether he gets that title match at Great American Bash in a month or a little bit longer, I do think Cruz and Braun is gonna be a tremendous TV match. And if they wanna call Braun Breaker up, having him lose the title to Cruz would make a lot of sense. When Cruz joined our show, I interviewed him a couple of years ago. And I actually asked him that question about leaving NXT after such a short period of time, never winning a championship, all that. And he told me on that interview, on that show, that he felt he left too soon Um, He didn't think he was ready from a promo department. And there were a lot of other things where he was just starting to pick it up when he got called up. But what WWE told him at the time was they had a certain spot that they needed to fill and he was the person to fill that spot. So that completely tracks with what he said in the promo. And I like that he put that reality into it and it honestly just worked on every level. This was also a reminder for me that Cruz had been sitting on Raw doing nothing when they could have moved him to SmackDown and put him in the mid-card. It's another guy who was just sitting on Raw for really no good reason whatsoever. At least they're doing something with him now. I'm very happy he's getting this opportunity. And I think he has a legitimate shot to kind of build himself up, you know, figure out a character, build himself up back into it, and make a return to the main roster. I don't necessarily think he's going to have the impact that a Finn Balor will, but I do think he can kind of reset his career a little bit, come back fresh, no accent, and maybe more confidence in himself. Um, as an overall performer. Uh, Carmelo Hayes and Trick Williams opened NXT with Mello putting Cameron Grimes over for being tough to beat uh, before putting himself over for being the greatest. Solo Sokoa obviously interrupted saying NXT was less about talking and more about fighting. He reiterated that he's got next, but Trick said that was a deal he had with Grimes, not Mello. Grayson Waller then came out saying he didn't care about Sokoa's lineage and he didn't have Mello's number. Uh, he got big time heat from the crowd. Sokoa said he's solo only in the ring, but not in NXT as a whole because the crowd's got his back. Then he tried to take the heels three on one, but he got his ass beat down. In the training room, Sokoa said he didn't want to wait. He wanted Mello and Waller before the night was out. He was asked if he meant a handicap match. He said someone could join him if they want, but he didn't care. He'd fight them two on one. So that seemed to open the door for a surprise partner. Later backstage, Tony D'Angelo told Mello not to expect to hold this title for too long. Trick said D'Angelo may be the dawn of NXT, but Mello is the son of NXT. Everything revolves around him. Really good line. 
Uh, D'Angelo used the disrespectful S-O-N, calling him son, uh, referring to Mello, obviously pissing off him and Trick. This was a great segment to start the episode. Mello's promo, it did fall a bit flat, but Waller was on point. It was kind of strange to see them aligned when Waller should kind of be interested in winning the North American Championship himself, but the whole thing worked really well. And most importantly, Sokoa feels like he's developing his own personality and he's really connecting with the fans, which is obviously important. D'Angelo stepping up as another challenger, I thought that was strange too, because that would be heel versus heel with Mello. And even though Mello, I guess, could play tweener, it was odd to insert that when Sokoa is contending and he's the person that really should be the focus of the North American Championship right now. So anyway, we got Sokoa against Mello and Waller in the main event. On the ramp, Sokoa announced that he had a partner and Cruz came back out for the second time in the show to another huge pop. Cruz had new all-black tights and he hit a 30-second delayed vertical suplex on Waller before later doing a flinging splash outside. Cruz later got the hot tag and hit three Fuende on uh, Walter. And by the way, that's what I'm calling three amigos. I think it's German for friend uh, friends, but I'm not totally sure. But the three Germans uh, like three amigos. I'll try to call it that. Uh, Cruz kipped up and hit a standing moonsault on Waller for a broken fall. Sokoa super kicked Hayes and they took themselves outside. Waller snapped Cruz's neck over the top rope, but Cruz caught his rolling cutter into a spinning sit-down powerbomb for the win in 13 minutes. This was a total banger of a tag team match with four of the best wrestlers on the brand right now. Yes, Cruz included in that. I went 3.75 stars and a B plus because there wasn't much in-match storyline, but it was a great main event. Everyone got over. You really couldn't ask for more. And letting Cruz get the fall to end the show, his first night back, letting him get two pops in one episode, easily the right decision. I loved the way that was booked. So we had the finals of the NXT breakout tournament, Roxanne Perez against Tiffany Stratton. Perez wore gear with a new nickname, Prodigy, on it. There were some rough moments early, mostly Stratton's fault. Perez tried an assisted Escalera, but Stratton twisted and dropped her over the top rope by her arm. Perez sold a shoulder. Stratton hit a triple handspring elbow in the corner for a near fall. Roxanne hit a flying Fez press, bottom rope tope suicida, and Russian leg sweep for a near fall. She did some twisting handstand, but landed on her injured shoulder. Perez kicked out of a crucifix, then ate a sit-down powerbomb for a 2.8. She grabbed Stratton's leg as she tried her finisher. Then Stratton missed a double jump moonsault, and Perez nailed her with pop rocks for the win in 12 minutes. Cora Jade immediately came out with her to celebrate. Then Toxic Attraction came out with Mandy Rose, sarcastically praising her and talking trash. She lost her place in her promo, Mandy did, and then she guaranteed that Perez would fail if she cashes in against her, pointing out that Jade failed twice already. Roxanne punched her in the mouth and Indy Hartwell came down for the save with the faces standing tall in the end. Stratton then interrupted a Wendy Chu interview later in the show, only to get a drink thrown right in her face. This was a fun match that was rough in parts due to Stratton's inexperience, so I went 3.25 stars and a B, but Perez again proved she's the total package, and honestly, there's no doubt in my mind, she's main roster ready. She could be up there right now. I have a strange suspicion that she's going to cash in for a tag team title match with Jade, given that Indy is so involved with Mandy one-on-one. I think that would be kind of unfortunate if she did that, but it would also be a guarantee that the tag team titles would come off Toxic Attraction, which would be a blessing in disguise. Either way, this was the right booking, her winning, and it was an appropriate end to what was a solid enough tournament. I should also note though, Mandy Rose's promo was awful. Like one week after I think I came on here and I praised her for making some moderate gains on the mic, I think she cut 
maybe her worst promo since returning to NXT. Not only did she lose her place, but everything she said was just a total shrug or an eye roll. It was repetitive. And I've said it many, many times, but especially when covering NXT in your house, they absolutely need to take the title off of Mandy ASAP as soon as possible. I'm here to stay, make, make, a, make a, uh, a good, good lucha, lucha thing. God damn. We had Legado del Fantasma that was waiting in the parking lot for the D'Angelo family. That's their new name. When they arrived, they took care of some tasks before D'Angelo told Santos Escobar he had a scheduled match and what a scheduled match it ended up being. Escobar against Nathan Frazier. D'Angelo kept yelling pointers to Escobar after the bell. Escobar hit a huge suicide dive through the turnbuckles when D'Angelo said to stop doing that stuff because no one likes it. Uh, so Escobar hit a tilt-a-roll backbreaker and put Frazier in a surfboard for a near fall. Frazier was caught on a springboard moonsault, but moved it into a sling blade before hitting a running shooting star press for a near fall. Escobar avoided a Phoenix splash and hit a lifted knee. When he super kicked Frazier outside, a goon tossed a crowbar in the ring. Escobar threw it back, but Frazier took advantage of the distraction with a boot and a Phoenix splash for a huge upset win in 13 minutes. D'Angelo screamed at him after the bell uh, while he was on the canvas. The constant stuff with D'Angelo, it took away from the match a bit, but it was part of the storyline and we did get a tremendous TV match that was given plenty of time. Still a slight downgrade to 3.75 stars, B plus if you want to compare it to the AEW match from earlier. You can tell I pretty much did the same thing. Uh, But I have no doubt that these two, Escobar and Frazier, could put on a high level match going full bore with like five more minutes. They could get to a five-star match. I mean, they just could. That's how talented they are. This was a blast. As far as the family legato interactions, I will say so far so good. They haven't uh, done anything yet to kind of piss me off about it, but do I love it? I don't love it. Uh, Joe Gacy told the Druids in a dark promo that there's no shame in knowing you can't make it alone. He said they've made great strides together and their goals are bigger than individual possessions. He said the focus is now on their progression. They are now known as the Dyad and will make their in-ring debuts next week. The name actually sounds good given the gimmick, but for those who don't know, dyad literally just means group of two. Like there's no additional meaning. It's not spooky. It has nothing to do with mystics or arts or anything like that. It just means group of two. I also wonder if these guys are going to wrestle in the maroon druid costumes with the masks and all that. And on top of that, we have no idea who these guys are. Now, I'm going to put something out there and I don't want to like put this into the universe and have it come back and be true. And then, you know, don't don't blame me. Just remember, I don't get to book NXT. But I am honestly kind of scared shitless a little bit that the dyad is the Grizzled Young Veterans. They have not returned since they did that whole big storm off promo saying they needed to reevaluate things. And if the Grizzled Young Veterans come back as maroon druids alongside Joe Gacy, I am going to be massively, massively upset and disappointed by it. I actually might lose my entire mind on this podcast next week if it is indeed GYV as the dyad. So please don't do it um, if that's the case. And other than that, let me just say, I just remain completely disinterested in Gacy and this entire gimmick. It does not work on any level. Uh, Alba Fire fought Tatum Paxley. Paxley flipped out of a few moves before Fire hit the gory bomb. She then went for the Swanton Bomb, but Paxley kept rolling like into the middle of the ring. And Alba Fire somehow still hit the Swanton 
almost landing on the back of her neck and got the win in three minutes. Uh, Fire then shook Paxley's hand after the bell. Lash Legend booted Fire on the ramp and talked trash. I thought it was good for Fire to get another easy win. And I didn't really mind the short match given the drastic difference in talent level. I did mind that Paxley rolled way too far away and put Fire at injury risk for no reason. I love that they're going back to calling her other move the Gory Bomb, but I hate that it's not her finisher. It's way, way better than a Swanton made famous by someone else. The Gory Bomb, I know others have done that move. I don't know technically what it's called, but she's really popularized it, especially in NXT and WWE. So let it be the Gory Bomb and let it be her finisher. You don't need her doing the Swanton. I don't care that she has long hair like Jeff Hardy. She doesn't need to do it. So that's, there you go. Um, That's my take on Alba Fire. She's awesome, by the way. I like the name. I like the gimmick. I like the look. Everything about it, except the Swanton. Uh, Diamond Mine was admiring the Creed Brothers tag team titles in the gym when Roderick Strong shared how they all got at odds because they're all alphas, but he was still very proud of them. They all hugged each other when Idris Anofe and Malik Blade came in to praise them and ask for a title match. Julius Creed acted like they were dissing them at first, only to joke, say he appreciated their praise. Then he just accepted a title match for next week, which really pissed Strong off because as a former champion, he knows you should not just hand out title matches. Strong turned on a dime. He said they already made their one mistake after becoming champions, and that put Diamond Mine at odds again. This was a really well done segment. It swerved me because I thought they had rehabbed the fracture, only for it to end up growing deeper just moments later. I remain intrigued by the storyline and the ultimate goal here. The only disappointment is that the Creed's really should have gotten a moment like in front of the crowd, given they were new champions. It would have been great to get them serenaded, bring Strong out, have him cut the same promo, basically do the same thing, and Strong gets booed, the Creed's get cheered, and you really get the fans involved. So, you know, I didn't mind it backstage, but I thought it would have been better in front of a crowd. Zion Quinn said he dominated Wesley for 99% of their match and that Wes just got lucky. He promised a different result in a rematch next week, saying he'd knock Lee unconscious. It was actually a pretty good promo, but the storyline is slowly killing me inside. It's not working. I don't care much about it. And if the result is just going to be Lee like rolling up Zion Quinn again, then it's going to be even worse than I already think. Uh, We had Josh Briggs against Von Wagner after dominating early. Wagner took Brooks Jensen's casted arm and slammed it on the ring apron. Fallon Henley distracted the referee. Jensen took the cast off, slid it into the ring. Briggs nailed Wagner in the head with it. It really looked like he threw it at his head uh, before hitting a huge like clothesline from hell type of move for the upset win. This was truly shocking, honestly, given the way Wagner has been booked his entire NXT career. For him to like get unceremoniously defeated by half of a low card tag team was a true surprise to me. And it did get a minor pop because a surprising booking is always good. The match was too short to matter. I'm sure Wagner is going to get 50-50 booking next week. But for one night, I will say that it worked. Plus, it wasn't the full bore, but we did get a little bit. Big meaty man slapping meat. (laughs) We did get a little big meaty man slapping meat for a very short period of time on NXT. Chase U presented a scholarship to Thea Hale as the rest of the student section cheered her on. Pretty Deadly walked up to talk shit and Bodie Hayward ran them down, basically with an insult about losing the tag team titles. Later, Bodie got attacked backstage by Pretty Deadly and that pissed off Andre Chase. So he got Chase against Deadly in a two-on-one handicap match. Deadly hit an assisted gut buster and beat Chase two-on-one. Bodie uh, crawled down, but Hale stopped him 
and instead jumped on the apron herself to slap Deadly. And I thought we were suddenly going to get an intergender match, which I was pretty excited about. Chase had a Russian leg sweep and his Chase U stomps. Then he ate a boot to the face and spilt milk without Hale helping or really doing anything. I think she did one slap uh, for the loss in three minutes. This was just Deadly getting some juice back, but I was just disappointed to see them on the show at all because I really hoped that they would get called up to SmackDown, join Max Dupree and Maximum Male Models. It makes all the sense in the world, but instead we got them on NXT. Alas, it is what it is. That's really what you can say. And you know what? Them being in NXT is not the worst thing. It just, for me personally, is not preferable. There was also another vignette for Giovanni Vinci, and it was indeed revealed to be Fabian Eichner repackaged as we suspected. He did look good with a beard, a bunch of style, some cool, uh, you know, threads and, and watches and stuff like that. And obviously Fabian Eichner is fantastic in the ring, so it shouldn't be much of a stretch for him to get a strong push right away. But I have not been a fan of these vignettes at all. It doesn't make me care about the character. The name is fine, but it is so typical, like, of what they're trying to do. Vidi Vidi Vici, Leonardo da Vinci. Like, they're just they're shoving Italian words and Italian names, phrases that we've heard. They're just shoving two of them together, basically, is what it, is what it feels like. Very boring, very basic. And I wish they would have done something else with Fabian Eichner. But it really does feel that they're trying to build him as the heir apparent for Cesaro. And you know what? There's way worse things. If Fabian Eichner can move up to the main roster and have Cesaro's career, that's a pretty damn good career. So he has the in-ring talent. Um, He has the storytelling ability in the ring. Like Cesaro, English is not his first language, but he could certainly get there. And and if he does, then that's going to be pretty impressive. Uh, It was also weird, though, that we didn't get any Cameron Grimes on the show does make me wonder if he's getting a call up. And there were a couple other names that weren't on the program that I was kind of surprised for that to be the case. Um, One update I do have is that Io Shirai is indeed injured and is going to be out of action continuing for a period of time. So her not being on NXT, not being on SmackDown, it's not a concern. They're not, you know, shoving her in the back and, and, and locking her in a suitcase and waiting to open it. She legitimately cannot compete, which is why she isn't anywhere. But hopefully when Io Shirai does show back up somewhere, it is on the main roster and not in NXT. She does not need to go back to NXT. And that is really it for this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, covering everything that happened over the last week in AEW and NXT. We will be back next week. Same bat time, same bat channel for another AEW NXT episode. However, before that, this upcoming Tuesday, the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, Vintage, Chris Vanini, we will both be back to talk WWE, everything that goes down this upcoming Friday on SmackDown, the following Monday on Raw, and a pretty big story about the main event picture in WWE that, yes, already is pissing the Silver King off. But I appreciate all of you listening to this episode. Please remember, as we get out of here, the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating on Apple. Also leave a review. Let everyone know how much you love the show. We do read five-star reviews on the podcast. We did get a couple new ones. Those will be read on Tuesday's episode. And please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at GettingOverCast. That is it for today. And the Silver King is now signing off, leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now. <laughs>